Now, if there was one thing, if there was just one thing, one aspect, one event of the life of Jesus that wasn't true or didn't happen, okay, just one, we can completely reject him. We don't have to care uh, at all anything he said. Just one. Okay, meaning that everything else happened. Okay, everything else that he did and taught happened. Okay, he really healed the paralytic that was coming down from the roof. He really calmed the storm with just a word. He really did give a command and demons were you know, left people. He really did those things. He really raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come out! And the dead man who has been dead for four days came out. Even if he did all those things, all those things and more could be true. But if just one thing, if just one event did not happen, we can completely reject him. We don't have to care at all about what he said. So what is that one event? That event, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, some people like to say, you know, I really appreciate this aspect of Jesus' teaching. You know, I really see he has profound insight to offer in this area. But, but this area, I can't say I agree with him. I can't say, you know, I, I, I like what he says there. Now, as Tim Keller has said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether he rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. End quotation. So we're going to be looking at Luke's account. And why don't we ask God to help us as we look at his word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we have your word in our hands. And we pray now by the powerful working of your spirit, you will open our minds to your truth. And that we will hear afresh the truth and the reality and the implications of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. I pray that you will open our eyes to see him as we hear your word. Please help us. For your sake and our good, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so the first point, looking at verses 1 to 12, he is not here. He is not here. Now, why were the women going back to the tomb? Now, you might remember that Jesus was crucified and he died on a Friday. And uh, the Jews had a burial process which was quite involved. And because Jesus died quite uh, late on Friday, there wasn't enough time for the women to complete the whole burial process because they had to stop when it was sundown because it was Passover. So Passover started on Friday evening. So in God's providence, there wasn't enough time, which meant that they had to quietly wait until Passover was over 
so that Sunday morning they would come to the tomb to finish the burial process. But when they come back, they find an empty tomb. And they find the angels there. And the angels, uh, they say something to them, which we will look at later. But I want to skip ahead to verses 9 to 11. So the angels announce to them, okay, Jesus is risen. And the women, they go to the 11 disciples, right? 12 minus 1, 11. So they go to the 11 and they, they tell them, all that they had seen, told them what the angels had told them. But look at verse 11. The disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The disciples' response was to completely reject the women's testimony and reject it as nonsense. Now the point is, that neither the women, nor the eleven disciples, or the other disciples, none of them, none of them were actually expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. You see, even though Jesus had told them, three days, I'll die, and three days later I'll rise. See, they weren't there on Sunday with balloons, and with the banners, you know, Happy Easter, you know, and they weren't ready to sing, uh, you know, oh, see what a morning, gloriously right? You know, they, were, they were ready, to, they, they weren't doing that because they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And it's important that we notice this, it's important that we say this and we underline this because this is crucial evidence for the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Now, let me explain why. You see, you talk to your friend, right? and you try and uh, convince him about the resurrection, and your friend's response is always, okay, prove it to me. You know, show me, prove it to me, and then maybe I'll believe you. The non-Christians always think that the burden of proof is on us, that we have to do all the proving. Now, that's not entirely true. Because those who reject the resurrection of Jesus... On their part, they have to come up with an alternative explanation. An alternative explanation for why there is a global church today. Now that's undeniable. right? You look around in every country, even heavily persecuted countries like Vietnam, there is a living church. And you can trace the history of the church back to the first century. Now, how did this come about? Even though it was so hard, even though there was so much persecution, how can you explain the birth of the church? And so the people who reject the resurrection will say something like, well, in the first century, the people were primitive. They were not advanced in science and medicine like us. You know? So they, 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 they were naive. They, they happily lapped up. Uh, you know, they, they readily believed that the resurrection was possible. And so when the disciples heard uh, reports about a risen Jesus, they wanted it to be true because they missed him so much. They wanted it to be true and, and, and many of them probably had a spiritual experience. You know, maybe when they were washing up, they felt, eh, I, I felt Jesus beside me. And maybe when they were looking at the Old Testament, they were, oh, I heard a voice, Jesus was... You know, so they had spiritual experiences 
of the, the presence of Jesus with them. And so, over the years, these feelings, experiences of Jesus, you know, living in their hearts, it, be, it became developed into actual stories of a physical Jesus that had risen from the dead. So this is how uh, those who reject the uh, resurrection of Jesus, this is, the, this is the alternative explanation that they come up with for why there is a church today. They spiritually felt him, and over the years it became and developed into stories of a physical, bodily rising from the dead. Now, right, it's quite clever view, right? And you know, to the ignorant, it sounds possible. But, you see, the people in the first century, they were not so different from us. They were not more accepting of the notion of a physical resurrection because they, they too rejected these ideas, as we can see from the text. The disciples were actually skeptical. Even when the women came, people that they knew and trusted, even when they came and said, the tomb is empty. The angels saw angels. And they did not believe the women. They rejected it as nonsense. And even when Peter ran to the tomb and he looked, when he saw the empty tomb himself, you know, he, did, he didn't join two and two. He still could not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. The only thing that would have convinced them was that they actually saw, actually touched, actually heard Jesus himself resurrected bodily, risen from the dead. Then that, that is historically the most plausible explanation for the birth of the church. Now we'll talk more about that later. Now, before we leave this section, I want to, I promise us that we'll look at what the angels announced. Verses 5 to 7. Now, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men who are these angels, they said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? You notice the slight rebuke there. And then they say in verse 6, He is not here. He has risen. Now, Personally, for me, these seven words in verse 6, I find to be one of the most encouraging and one of the most challenging in the whole Bible. He is not here. He has risen. Because this tells us about the reality of the resurrection. It tells us that there are implications. And if you look at the whole New Testament, these are some of the implications. Number one. The resurrection is God the Father's response. Okay, the resurrection is God the Father's response of 100% acceptance and approval of Jesus' work on the cross. So the resurrection proves that, G that God the Father has accepted the work Jesus has done on the cross. Now someone has put it this way. The resurrection is God the Father's Amen to Jesus' words on the cross when he said, it is finished. God is saying amen to that with his raising of Jesus from the dead. Okay, that's number one. Number two, the resurrection is God the Father's vindication of Jesus. 
And Jesus is vindicated by being exalted to the highest place. Jesus is crowned as Lord by his resurrection. He is crowned as the king, the rightful king of the whole universe. So this is who he is. He is the risen Lord. That's why if Jesus rose from the dead, we have to accept all that he said. And if he didn't, why worry? We can just have a disco party here now. Right? Number three. The resurrection is proof that Jesus will one day judge the world. And uh, it's Acts 17 verse 31 which tells us that. Resurrection is proof that Jesus will one day judge the world. That is so encouraging, isn't it? As you look at all the injustice in the world, so much of it that goes unpunished in this life, the raising of Jesus from the dead is proof that he will actually hold everyone accountable. There will be no one who gets away. No one who gets away with anything. Number four, the resurrection is the first fruit of our own resurrection. It is the great sign to us as believers that we too will one day rise to a bodily new life. You see, so all this, all these four things and more, which we could have said, all these are based on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the disciples, they didn't make it up. They didn't hallucinate. They were really convinced because it was true. He is not here. He is risen. Number two, looking at verses 13 to 35, he is not a stranger. He is not a stranger. Now Luke's cameraman pans from the scene at the empty tomb to a road that's going out of Jerusalem and two disciples who are leaving, uh, maybe going to back to their home in the village of Emmaus. And we are told that uh, one of the disciples there is uh, Cleopas and he has a companion and most likely it's his wife, Cleopatra. And then as they are walking, there's a mysterious stranger that joins them. And you look at verse 16. Verse 16, it's actually Jesus who joins them, but verse 16 tells us they were kept from recognizing him. Now why? Why were the two disciples kept from recognizing Jesus? Well, Jesus shows us the reason by asking them the question in verse 17. What were you talking about? What were you discussing as you walked along together? And Cleopas answers in verse 19. And his answer shows his spiritual condition. So after Jesus asks the question, uh, Cleopas says, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And then he says, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So you see, they identify Jesus as only a prophet. 
and while they were uh, certain that what he taught and what he did showed that he was one who had the potential to redeem Israel, but because of his death, they had lost hope in him. So why were they kept from recognizing Jesus? Why couldn't they see him even though he was there? The risen Lord, he was there beside them and yet they couldn't recognize him. I think their outward inability to recognize Jesus was a reflection of what was happening in their hearts. They couldn't recognize him outwardly because inwardly they did not believe. They did not believe all that he taught, all that he said. They did not believe what the Bible said about Christ. Their outward blindness is a reflection of their inward blindness. So how does Jesus deal with their blindness? Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now friends, this should bring us great comfort. Because after we leave here today, as you walk to the hawker centre, as you walk back to the car, none of us are likely to have a stranger come beside us and turn out that the stranger is Jesus. None of us, as we are walking to the MRT station in the morning, going to work, none of us are likely going to have the experience of Jesus walking beside us, talking to us, teaching us, guiding us. Because it is not simply the physical sight, seeing him with our physical eyes, that gives us the assurance of salvation. What we need was what Jesus gave to these two disciples. The believing in Jesus, the seeing him, not just physically, but seeing him in the pages of Scripture. They couldn't see him. And Jesus' solution to deal with their blindness was to turn their minds to the Bible. And the Bible is what we have today. We will not have Jesus walking beside us, but we will see him in the Bible. And notice what was their description of their experience of Jesus teaching the Bible to them. Uh, they say that later in verse 32. As they reflect back, they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, why did they have the experience of their hearts burning within them? What was happening? I mean, it's not, it's not the first time that they're reading their Bibles. I'm sure these two disciples, they've read their Bibles hundreds of times more than us. So what was so special about this time? Well, verse 27 again. See what Jesus said? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? That's the way of talking about the whole Old Testament. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. Full stop? No. What was said in all the scriptures concerning him? Self. He was showing them about how the Bible was about him. You see, there are wrong ways to read the Bible and there are right ways to read the Bible. Some of the wrong ways to read the Bible is to read the Bible 
uh, in a moralistic way. We look at the Bible and we say, okay, what do I have to do? What morals do I learn? Uh, don't do this, don't do that. Okay, that's the wrong way. Uh, the other wrong way is a me-centered approach. I go to the Bible and I ask, okay, now, what does this teach me? How, what can I learn from this? How does this apply to me? Well, it's all me, me, me. What does it teach about me? What I should do, what I should live? What does it say about me? Well, Jesus shows us that the right way to read the Bible is the Christ-centered way. To look at the Bible and see what it says about Him. And so when the disciples had that, their hearts were burning within them. So, say Jesus was teaching that right from Moses and the prophets, and he comes to this part, uh, the historical prophet, talking about David and Goliath. What would be a moralistic way? What would be a me-centered approach way of reading uh, the story of David and Goliath? We will go something, some people have said this, you know, it's been taught in more than one Sunday school, right? David, what did he take from the river? He took five smooth stones. Right, and with the five smooth stones, he defeated the giant Goliath. Now, the giant Goliath stands for the, the problems in your life. And so what are the five stones? The five stones are the stones of faith, hope, love, joy. You know, something like that. Have I reached five yet? Okay, I don't know. Okay, but, you know, the five stones stand for these things. And so if you, if you come at your problems with faith and hope, you know, love and joy, you can defeat your problems. Hallelujah, right? Now, that is a moralistic, me-centered approach. Now, if you hear it for the first time, you might sound inspired. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a big problem. Oh, and so the Bible is teaching me here, with faith, I can defeat that problem. But what sounds inspirational for a short time will actually crush you. Because over time, you will realize, eh, maybe I don't have enough faith. The problem is so big. I don't actually have enough love. I, I, I'm not feeling all that hopeful. And so, so without these things, I can't defeat the problem. It, this moralistic, me-centered approach to the Bible actually crushes you. But what Jesus was actually doing on the road to Emmaus was saying, you know David and Goliath? Now who was David? David, David was the weakest one. He was the youngest, the weakest one. And so, God's salvation came through weakness. And you see, when you, in the story of David and Goliath, who, who do you relate to? Who do you identify with? So many of us want to identify with David because we want to identify with the hero. But why? That's not right. No, we should be identifying with the people of Israel. We are the people of Israel and, and our enemy has come before us and we have no solution. We are, we are too weak to fight against this enemy. But God provides. God provides His appointed Savior. And He, in the power of the Lord, defeats Israel's enemies. We identify with the people of Israel and we see with wonder and amazement and gratitude at the Savior God has provided. And so we see that that picture of David actually points ahead to Jesus. That we, in the face of death, Sin, the devil, we are helpless and powerless, but we stand and we see in Jesus God's provision of our Savior, our leader, our King, and He leads us to victory. He deals with the enemy. He saves us. 
And so if you see that from the Bible, will not your hearts burn at the majesty of Jesus, at His beauty, and even though He was so holy, He gave up everything so that He could save us, that we could share in His righteousness. Would not your hearts burn if you see Christ, the Gospel, in the pages of Scripture? Well, for these two disciples, their spiritual eyes have been opened to see the truth of Christ in the Bible, but But how did their physical eyes open? Well, look at verse 30 and 31. So they reach the village and they uh, implore this stranger to come in because they want to hear more, right? And at verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. So, the question is, why here? Right, as I was studying this passage, that's the thing I asked myself. I wrote this question down. Why here? Why at this point their eyes were open? Now, the best explanation that I've come across is that what they were doing, now, while they were not strictly celebrating the Lord's Supper, Okay, this was not. This was just an ordinary meal. This, they weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper. This wasn't just uh, you know, a later Passover. No, no. But it wasn't strictly the Lord's Supper. The way Luke recorded it, the, his words in verse 30, uh, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. These words closely resemble. Okay? They are very similar to the words that was used in chapter 22 when Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, right? Uh, in English, it's very similar, right? Took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Right? So the words are very similar. And so, uh, what Luke is doing is telling us that while this is not strictly the Lord's Supper, the words are used to make us recall what happened there. Now, some commentators object to this. They say, no, 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 this, this, this can't be. Right, because there's no mention of what the wine, right? But you see, Luke has a tendency to refer to the Lord's Supper as simply the breaking of bread. Because in his second volume, right, the Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 2, verse 42, after the 3,000 new converts joined the church, he says of them that they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. See, so he, he refers to the Lord's Supper uh, by that one element alone. So, back to the question. Why did they recognize Jesus at this point, at the breaking of the bread? Right, verse 31 tells us their eyes were opened at this point. Now, think about what the bread stands for in the Lord's Supper. Right, it symbolizes his body given for us. And it is at this point that Jesus is recognized. It is at this point that God opens their eyes to see who Jesus is. It is Jesus that is standing before them. And I think it is at this point that Jesus is recognized because this, this is the unique feature of Jesus. This is the unique 
characteristic. This is the distinguishing mark of our Saviour. There is no other who has given his body for us. And David Gooding in his commentary says this, that it is the same for us today, that we recognize the authentic Saviour of the world by that same gesture. Because there is none other in the world of human history who offered up his body for our personal redemption. So friends, he is no stranger. He is the risen Jesus. And when in verse 31, the disciples recognize him, what happens? Magic trick. He disappears. He disappears from their sight. The moment they recognize, oh, it's Jesus. He disappears. Now, what's happening there? Why? Is he playing hide and seek with them? Why did he disappear? Now, I think what's happening is that Jesus is wanting to teach them. He's wanting to teach those two disciples. He's wanting to teach generations of disciples that will come after them. That the way to see him, the way to recognize him, the way to, to meet him and have a relationship with him, is through seeing him in the pages of Scripture. To seeing him in the breaking of the bread which itself points back to the truth of what he has done in the Bible. So while Jesus could walk with these disciples on the road to Emmaus, what was going to happen in 40 days' time is that Jesus would ascend to heaven. He would go and be sitting at the right-hand side of uh, God. He would not be bodily present on earth anymore. And every generation of believers... Every generation to come, we would have to deal without the bodily presence of Jesus. We will not be able to have him here as proof. We won't have him by our side to guide us. All we have is his living and active word. And Jesus is teaching us that that, that is enough. Because that was what was enough for these two disciples With that, their hearts were left burning. And it is enough for us. Now, if you are a non-Christian here today, and maybe you've been exploring Christianity for some time, can I say to you, don't wait. Don't expect some dazzling vision to happen. Don't wait for some voice from heaven to speak to you before you will believe and become a Christian. Because you can meet Jesus now. You can see if it's real or not by going to the Bible. The way it has happened for every generation of disciples was that they saw him. They saw the reality of who he is and what he has done in the scripture. So you can know by going here and not waiting for some vision to happen. But what about the rest of us who are Christian? And uh, there are times, there are times when we feel that Jesus is very far away. There are times when we feel, you know, he's, he's not even here. He's not even here. And at times like this, the most tempting thing to do is to neglect the reading of the Bible. 
and do something else, look for some other experience to, to fill that void, to fill his closeness again. The most tempting thing to do is to neglect the reading of the Bible. But Jesus is teaching us here. No, we, our hearts are ablaze. We see him, we meet him, we draw near to him as we see and meet him in the pages of the Bible. So do not neglect. Right, when we wake up in the morning, there are so many things that tempt us away from, from feeding ourselves in His Word. Can you see? Remind yourself that those other things, whether it's BBC News on your app or Zeit you know, on, your, on your phone, all those things do not offer anything like the life and hope and assurance and certainty that we will find in the pages of Scripture as we see this and read this and meet our risen Saviour here. The only way our hearts will be left burning and ablaze is as we come to the Scriptures and pray, God, open my eyes, open my mind to see you and your Son here. Now, I have prepared the rest of it but I think we should end here let's pray Father help us to see and to think through clearly all the implications that come from the truth and the reality that you have raised your son up Father, help us to meet life and its challenges with this truth firmly in our hands and in our hearts. And Father, please convince us, give us the desire, give us a growing appetite for your word, that we will not neglect it, that we will not run after other things, other experiences, but we will come to your word and pray that you will open our minds to see Jesus, our risen Lord, see what he has done for us, his dying and rising again that is for us. Father, please help us to see the risen Lord. That everything has changed because he is alive today. And that we must accept all that he said. Thank you, Father. Amen.